Well, last week we had a lot of fun together. If you weren't here, we got to do something a little different. I got to do a Q&A of questions that you submitted on social media to me the week before. We put that sermon up online if you didn't get a chance to see it, so you can go walk through those questions that we answered in here. covered a lot of topics from politics all the way to doubt and faith. But there were a lot of questions that we couldn't get to. I don't think I even got to half of them. And so Michael and Melissa Meyerdirk helped put together a video podcast this week where I answered another chunk of questions. I think we got to another eight of them. And so you can actually go watch that podcast if maybe your question didn't make the cut on Sunday or you want to see some more questions unpacked. So that both the sermon and the podcast are on Grace's YouTube channel. We do have a YouTube channel if you didn't know that. So you can hop on there and watch them. Well, one of the questions from last week that I talked about in the sermon was how can we as followers of Jesus Christ participate in racial reconciliation? And my word to you was that we need to, and and perhaps the best thing we can do, at least at first, is to learn to listen. We need to follow James' advice in James chapter 1, be slow to speak and quick to hear. We need to learn to listen to people from other groups, especially underrepresented groups. And so I wanted to give you a chance to do that this week. And so especially as we're celebrating Martin Luther King Jr. this last week, I asked two African-American members of our congregation to write out their stories of life as a black Christian in America. And so they wrote out their stories for you. The first is Joshua Luckett, who's on staff here at Grace Bible Church. He's one of our resident coordinators on our outreach team. And the second is April Williams, who's a doctoral candidate here at Texas A&M and a diversity fellow in the sociology department. And so I asked them both to write out their stories, and I'll share those stories with you on my Facebook and Twitter feeds this afternoon. I've also printed out a bunch of copies and put them in the foyer if you prefer print over online. At the end of their stories, we've shared a few books with you that our outreach department has has read and found really helpful at entering into this conversation about racial reconciliation. So you'll see those three books. Some of them are not from a Christian perspective, so we wouldn't necessarily agree with everything in them, but all three are really helpful at, at moving you into this conversation about race in America. So we'd love to give you the opportunity just to listen, and so you can read their stories this week. Now, the book of Matthew, which we'll be studying this spring, actually has a lot to say about racial reconciliation. That might surprise you. But it's not black-white racial reconciliation. It's actually Jew-Samaritan-Gentile racial reconciliation. Lots about that, but we're not there yet. That's later in the book, and we need to start at the beginning of Matthew, and so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to introduce you to the book and to this series. So you can turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 1. We're just going to start right at the beginning today. We've titled this series, Follow the King, because if you have to think about the book of Matthew in one word, it would be king. That's the big idea. Jesus is our king and we must follow him. The whole book really has a very simple main idea. Jesus is king, follow him. But the book itself is actually pretty complicated to read. I don't know if you've ever sat down and tried to read the gospel of Matthew. It's not easy. It assumes a lot of its readers. Actually, Matthew assumes that you have already read and understood everything that came before it. 
when I sit down and start reading Matthew, it reminds me, I don't know if you guys remember this, it was a few years ago. Do you remember when the last Harry Potter book came out? Book number seven, Deathly Hollows. There were lines outside of bookstores, like wrapping around the stores, waiting for 12.01 a.m. on July 21st, 2007, for the books to go on sale. And, and Julie and I were pretty excited. We, we were big Harry Potter fans. We were excited about that seventh book. We wanted to get it. But we were kind of amazed because we had some friends who had never read any of the books who wanted to go pick up book seven to figure out what all the fuss was about. And we'd tell them, no, you, you cannot do that. You can't start with book seven and you'll ruin the whole story. Come on, people. You gotta start at the beginning for it to make any sense. Well, it's much the same in the Bible. You gotta start at the beginning. If you don't, then here's what happens. Look with me at Matthew chapter one, starting in verse one. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, and on and on. And at this point, you're ready to put the book down. Because no one starts a book with a genealogy if they want you to actually read it. This is crazy. Why would you do this? Why would Matthew start the story with a genealogy? Because this isn't the start of the story. Actually, Matthew is book number 40. And God's one story that's made up of 66 books. The 39 books of the Old Testament come first. So you're jumping into the middle of God's story when you open up to Matthew chapter 1. And and it's going to be impossible to understand because Matthew assumes you already know and understand the first 39 parts of God's story. He's assuming you already know the Old Testament because he picks up the story where the Old Testament left off, assuming you've already read it. So if we're going to study the book of Matthew this semester, I need to give you a crash course on the Old Testament. So last week was a bit ambitious. I covered 14 questions in one sermon. That was child's play compared to the day. We're going to cover the whole Old Testament in one sermon. Now we're just going to cover the high points. I'm going to walk you through the Old Testament in six parts. I'm going to simplify those 39 books into six chapters of the Old Testament. God's story leading up to Jesus in six parts. So that's where we're going to go this morning. Now the big idea of the Old Testament, big idea of all six parts of the Old Testament is that everything in history is leading us to Jesus. Everything in the Old Testament is pointing you and preparing you for Jesus. So everything you find in the Old Testament ultimately is pointing to him. So we're going to see that plan, that revelation of Jesus unfold in the Old Testament as we walk through all of it. So we've got to start at the beginning, turn to Genesis chapter 1. All the way back to the left of your Bible, Genesis chapter 1. We're going to start with the first chapter of God's one overarching story. God's story begins with creation. Chapter 1 or part 1 of God's story. This is about God's loving creation of humanity, of us, to bear his image and rule his world. So just to to catch you up, Genesis 1, God creates everything. Planets, stars, universe, trees, all of it. And then at the pinnacle of creation, God makes us. He makes human beings. And you find that part of the story starting in verse 26 of chapter 1. So chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said... 
Let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God makes us in his image and that's an unprecedented honor. I don't know if you've ever thought about what it means to be made in the image of God. Nothing else is. There is no other form of life that's made in the image of God. Only you, only me. Now, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Well, unlike all other life, since we are in the image of God, we're able to be part of God's family. You can be a son or daughter of God. A dog can't. Dog has no ability to relate to God, but humans can relate to God because we're made in his image. Second, because we're made in the image of God, we are able to reflect God's glory to creation by making moral choices. I don't know if you've ever thought about how unique it is that out of all life, you can make a moral choice. Dog can't make a moral choice. Can make a choice, but there's no morality to it. There is no righteousness or sin based on what the dog chooses to do. That's the same for cats and and birds and, and probably cats, depending on who you ask. There is no morality associated with anything they do, but there is for us. Human beings alone out of all God's creation have the ability to make moral choices just like God does. We're able to be like God when we choose good over evil. That's actually why God does a really strange thing early in the story. In the next chapter, Genesis 2, God creates a forbidden tree and plants it right in front of Adam and Eve. And that's kind of weird, right? Why would God put something off limits right in front of them? Why not put it way far away or not create it at all? Well, actually, that tree, that forbidden tree, is a gift. It was a gift to Adam and Eve to give them the chance to make a moral choice like God does. Without the tree, they're just a dog, just a cat. They can't choose good over evil. So God puts this forbidden tree in the middle of the garden to give Adam and Eve this wonderful, incredible honor of getting to make a choice, a moral choice, just like God does. So creation begins with humanity made in the image of God. It's an unprecedented honor. Second, we're given an unprecedented task, this incredible purpose in your life. You were made to rule. I love how the Bible exalts humans so high. I don't don't know if you ever thought about it. It's actually Christians who are the ultimate humanists. Ever thought about that? Humanism gets a bad rap, but we're the ultimate humanists because the Bible says we were made to rule. We were made in the image of God to rule God's creation. You were not created just to get a job, eat, and then die. No, you were made to rule all that God had made. David tells us in Psalm chapter 8, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God and you crown him with glory and majesty. You were made to rule the universe crowned with God's glory. The highest honor, the greatest purpose imaginable. 
So the story of the Bible begins in a paradise where humans are loved and honored and everything is very good, according to God, at the end of chapter 1 of Genesis. That doesn't last long. Very quickly, within a couple chapters, we enter into the next chapter of the biblical story. The next part, part 2 of the Bible, is the revolt. So turn to Genesis chapter 3. This chapter of the story, this part of God's story, is about humanity's revolt against God's plan. So look with me, your key passage here is chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed as God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. This is where our enemy enters the story. This serpent's not just a serpent. Find out later in the Bible, this is Satan in the guise of a serpent. Now, we don't know much about Satan from the Bible. It doesn't tell us much. What we do know is that he was made an angel who was beautiful and perfect and with God in heaven. Perhaps the most beautiful, powerful angel ever created. But at some point in the far distant past, Satan faced a choice. Would he in humility worship God, or in pride, worship himself. Satan chose the latter. And at that moment, he fell from heaven and he became the enemy of God, resisting God's plan at every turn. And so when God creates Adam and Eve to rule creation, Satan immediately comes in to try to corrupt and destroy what God has made. So he comes and he tempts them with the same choice he faced. Notice how similar his choice is to their choice. Satan comes in and he questions God's goodness and he challenges Adam and Eve with the same choice. Adam and Eve, will you choose in humility to obey God or in pride will you try to make yourselves God in his place? That's what Satan appeals to. You will be like God. You don't have to submit to the king. You can be the king. Adam and Eve make the same choice that Satan did. They choose to eat of the forbidden fruit because they think it will make them gods. It doesn't work out that way. Rebellion doesn't bring divinity, it brings death. Just as God had warned, he told them, if you eat of this tree, you will surely die. And sure enough, death comes in all of its forms. There is a death of paradise. This is the end of the Garden of Eden. The end of creation being a paradise, being perfect. From this point on, Adam and Eve are are hostile towards creation. Creation is hostile towards them and life is full of pain and suffering. This is the death of relationships. From this moment on, mankind and God are hostile towards one another and humans are hostile towards one another. This is the death of their bodies. Adam and Eve were not created to die and yet at this point, their bodies move unavoidably towards death, just like ours do. And worst of all, this is the death of their spirit. At this point, the human spirit, its connection to God dies. Now we're born into sin. We're born separated from God. We're born preferring evil under the wrath of God. 
And so just as God had warned, the rebellion brings death in every form. And you begin to see that immediately. If you read the story, it gets really even sadder from this point forward. Because sin and death just flood the human race. Very next chapter, chapter 4. Their oldest son, Cain, murders his younger brother, Abel. I mean, talk about being a quick study. Humanity goes from stealing an apple to murdering each other within one generation. That evil continues to grow. Violence so fills the earth that by chapter 6, God has to hit the reset button with a flood. He saves Noah and his family to create a new start. But that new start doesn't last long, does it? Because humanity unites in rebellion. They try to build a tower at a place called Babel. That's not about architecture. That's about trying to be God. They wanted to build a tower up to heaven so they could take God's place. And so finally God comes down and disperses them into their different ethnicities and races and languages so they can no longer unite in rebellion. And so that's chapter 10. Within 10 chapters of the book of Genesis, we have gone from paradise to the Thunderdome. Things are as bad as they could possibly be. The whole earth is dark and full of evil. And yet God doesn't give up on us. In that moment, God begins an incredible plan to fix what we have broken. And that plan begins with a promise, and that's part three of the Old Testament. So the third chapter is a chapter we call Promise. We don't know the timing of the first two chapters. They could be many thousands of years ago. They could be many tens of thousands of years ago. They could be an incredibly long time ago. We do know when this chapter begins, the promise about 2000 B.C., When God shows up in the life of a man named Abraham. This part of God's story is about God's promise to restore humanity through the family of Abraham. And your key passage here is Genesis 12. Turn to Genesis 12. To the right just a little bit. Read the first few verses of Genesis chapter 12 to get a sense of what this part of the story is about. God begins something incredible with a promise. Chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, whom we know as Abraham, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. These promises from God to Abraham, they get formalized into a covenant. A covenant is a a binding contract between two parties. Here it's between God and Abraham. God covenants to give Abraham some incredible things. Land. We we find out later that that particular land is all the way from the Nile River to the Euphrates River. It would belong to Abraham and his descendants forever. Seed. Abraham would have a child. He hadn't been able to have a child at this point in his life. A child who would become a mighty nation. And blessing, that word's very general. It refers to Abraham having fame and prosperity and peace and success in every area of life. But the most important blessing of all, really, if you're going to underline something here, underline the very last phrase. It's one of the most important phrases in the entire Bible. God promises Abraham In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Those few words are actually what the rest of your Bible is about. It's about God fulfilling his promise through the family of Abraham to bring blessing to every person on earth. 
That's what the rest of the Bible unfolds, how God fulfills that promise to bless us all through the family of Abraham. So that promise to bless everyone through the family of Abraham, it raises a question. So there's going to be a descendant of Abraham, a seed of Abraham is a word that the Bible uses, who will become a blessing or bring God's blessing to all of humanity. So that raises the question, who will he be? Who is this descendant, the seed of Abraham, who will bring God's blessings to all of humanity, who will finally undo the curse of sin and death and fix all that we have broken? That becomes like this great unanswered question throughout the Old Testament. If you want to know, what were people asking themselves during the Old Testament was this. When is he coming? Who is he going to be? Who will be the seed of Abraham, the descendant of Abraham, who will bring blessing to all of humanity? There were a lot of great candidates in the Old Testament. People like Moses and and David, incredible men of God, and yet none of them were the promised seed. None of them brought blessing to the whole world, and shortly after them, within a couple generations, Israel was in a horrible state. And so no one in the Old Testament was the promised seed. And so when we move into the New Testament, the greatest question of all is when is God going to send the seed and who is he going to be? That's going to bring God's promised blessings to the human race and get us back to paradise. That is why Matthew begins in a very strange place with a genealogy. He is tracing Jesus back to Abraham. Why? Because that is the fulfillment of what humanity had been waiting for for 2,000 years before Jesus arrived. That God would send the seed of Abraham who would bless the world. That's why Matthew begins with the genealogy. It has to take us back to Abraham. That's where it all begins. So that's the, the, the third part, the third chapter of this story of the Old Testament promise. The, the next part, part four of God's story in the Old Testament, we call law. Law takes place around 1500 BC. And this chapter of God's story is, is about the gift of God's law that he gives to his people to show them the way to experience blessings. So, Here's the deal. Abrahamic covenant, incredibly good thing. Such a good promise, such a good gift, far better than Abraham or his family deserved. But there was one glaring deficiency in the Abrahamic covenant. It did not give God's people a way to access all of these blessings. It's kind of a strange thing to say. Think about it like this. If you were a descendant of Abraham living, let's just say 200 years after Abraham, You are kind of like a nine-year-old kid with a million-dollar trust fund. It legally belonged to you, but you couldn't access it. You're nine. Nothing you can do to cash in on that million dollars in the bank. That was the Israelites after Abraham. They had the greatest promises of God ever given belonging to them, and yet they couldn't cash in on them. They couldn't access them. That's why a couple hundred years after Abraham, guess where they are? They're in a place called Egypt, and they're slaves. Not through any fault of their own. They're the promised people. They're the chosen people. But they had no way to access God's blessings and experience a life full of prosperity. And so God fixes that deficiency by giving them the Mosaic Covenant. Giving them the law. 
God sends Moses to deliver Israel from slavery. He leads them out of Egypt. He takes them to a mountain called Sinai. And then God shows up and gives them a second covenant, the Mosaic covenant, which we call in the Bible just the law. Simple word, the law, the Mosaic covenant. The key passage here for the Mosaic covenant is in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 28. And I'll just read this one to you. Deuteronomy chapter 28 says... If you, Israelites, faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all of his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. The Mosaic Covenant, the law, reveals the rules that God's people must follow to receive God's blessings in this life. This equation that we just read, if you obey the rules, you get blessed. If you disobey the rules, you get cursed. It's important to clarify, this is not about heaven or hell. Heaven or hell have always been decided by faith alone for Abraham, for Moses, for you, for me. It's all about faith. This isn't about heaven or hell. This is about whether or not God's people would receive God's blessings in this life. Would they get the land God had promised? Would they get the peace God had promised? Would they get the prosperity God had promised? Well, only if they obey God's rules. If they don't obey God's rules, then they lose out on all of that. That equation becomes the driving force of the Old Testament. That's the story of the Old Testament in short. When Israel obeys the rules, they get blessed. When they disobey, they get cursed. Which of those sides of that equation did they spend most of the time on? The cursed side. Old Testament's not a fun book to read, sadly. Parts of it are. A lot of it's not. Because they spend so much time on the curse side of the equation. Why? Well, because there was a problem with the law. One problem. The law told you what to do but it didn't make you want to do it. The law was commandments written on stone. God told you exactly what the rules were, but he didn't change your heart. And that's the problem with the human race. It's not that we don't know what to do. Be honest. We know what to do. We don't want to do it. That's the problem with all human beings. And so Israel now, they knew exactly what to do, but God hadn't changed their heart, so they didn't want to do it. They still preferred sin and rebellion to obedience and submission. And so throughout the Old Testament, you see generation after generation after generation of Israelites choosing sin and getting cursed. Even the best Israelites chose sin. Even Moses, even David chose sin. Sin, And as a result, no one, no Israelite fully obeyed the law and fully received the covenant promises. And so now back to that question, who is going to be the promised seed of Abraham who would finally bring all of God's blessings to Israel and to the world? Well, well, now we know it's going to be the guy who perfectly obeys. The guy who shows up and perfectly follows all of God's rules, that's who will receive all of the blessings of God and share them with the world. So that's what we're looking forward to when Jesus shows up. Is Jesus that man who finally, for the first time in all of human history, fully obeys the rules of God? Well, we'll find out next week. That's where we'll go next week. 
For this week, we got to keep moving through the Old Testament. So God has told us all of his blessings to the world to fix our sin problem, to bring us back to paradise. It will come through the family of Abraham, through a person who will finally fully obey the law, the rules. He gives us a third clue about the identity of this promised savior in the next chapter of the story. So next chapter of the story in your Bible, we call King. This chapter is about God's choice of David's family to rule as the king of kings. Okay, so Israel, at some point in their history, they decide we want a king like every other nation. That's not really a very nice thing to say when God is your king, but God in grace grants them their wish. Okay, here's a king for you. God gives them a man who they thought, yeah, that's who should be king. Very kingly, tall, handsome man named Saul. He looked the part of a king, but he was not humble. And so God rejected him and chose another, a young man whom God tells us was a man after his own heart, a man named David. God chooses David and David proves to be a much better king than Saul. And so God gives David a covenant of his own, much like the Abrahamic covenant. We call it the Davidic covenant. It was given roughly 1000 BC. And the key passage here is in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you, David, from the pasture and from following the flock to be ruler over my people, Israel. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men of the earth. And I will provide a place for my people, Israel, and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. We call this the Davidic covenant. It promises to David, house, throne, kingdom, house. You will always have a family. There will always be a living descendant of David. Throne, you will always have authority over the people of God. Kingdom, you will always have a kingdom of people to rule. House, throne, kingdom are promised to David forever. That is why Matthew 1.1 begins by tracing Jesus, not just to Abraham, but but to David too. Because from, from this point on, from 2 Samuel on, we know when the seed comes, who will bring God's blessing to Israel, plant them in a land of their own, give them peace and bring blessing to the whole world. Not only will he be a son of Abraham, not only will he finally fully obey the law, but he will also be a son of David who will be king. So from this point on, we know to expect a king who will be of the family of David. That's why Matthew takes us back to that fact. That's why actually when Gabriel shows up and speaks to Mary... When when he promises Mary that she's about to have the Christ, the son of God, Gabriel says, he, your child, will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. See those same three words, house, throne, kingdom. That's what Jesus is about. The Davidic king has come. The promised, perfect, law-abiding king who would bring God's blessing to the human race is this tiny little baby in a manger named Jesus. That's where the story will go. So the Davidic covenant tells us that the world is going to receive a perfect king. Israel needed a perfect king badly. Because shortly after David, everything goes downhill. The story gets really dark. David's son is a man named Solomon, incredibly wise, but an incredible idolater. 
And his idolatry brings judgment from God. God divides the nation into two, the north and the south, and both flail and suffer and evil and sin grow under a succession of mostly evil kings until finally God shows up and says, you've completely forgotten my law. I'm kicking you off my land. And we call that the exile. The northern kingdom exiled 722 BC, southern kingdom exiled about 586 BC. They are kicked off God's land and it is an incredibly hopeless period of time, incredibly dark. And in the midst of that dark exile, God speaks hope. And that's the final chapter of the Old Testament, hope. Final part of the Old Testament story, God speaks around 500 BC God shows up and gives his people hope. This chapter of the story is about God's promise of a new covenant, a better covenant, to give his people hope even when things are dark. The key passage of of this chapter of hope is found in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. God promises a new covenant, a a better covenant. Do you remember the problem with the law? The law told you what to do, but what did it not give you? The desire to do it. And so God fixed that with this new covenant. God would actually write his law on your hearts. That's a very metaphorical way of saying God's going to change you from the inside out. He's going to rewire your neural processors up here so that you actually want to obey the law. It is inside you, this desire to obey the law. You know what to do and you want to do it. So finally you would perfectly obey. So finally you could enjoy all of the blessings that God has for you in life. That's the promise of the new covenant, finally to write the law on our hearts so that we would want to obey. The result would be that all of God's covenant promises would be fulfilled. There'd be no more sin or evil to get in the way. God could bring only good into the life of his people once the new covenant came. The new covenant would finally fix everything that's wrong with humanity. Righteousness and goodness would rule from one end of the earth to the other. Now that's a pretty great promise. This sounded too hard to believe towards the end of the Old Testament. As the Old Testament ends, God allows his people to come home. He brings the exile to an end. They, they come home, but it, it's never like it was. It's not a lot of them that come back. When they come back, they find the land beaten and, and oppressed. And so the Old Testament ends with a very sad note. Israel is nothing like it was. It, it has fallen so far. It is small. It is poor. It is oppressed. And then God goes silent. From the writing of the book of Malachi, end of the Old Testament, about 450 BC, God is silent until the events of Matthew. And during that period of silence, Israel languishes. Under a succession of Gentile overlords, never free, never prosperous, never powerful, they struggle and they wait. 
Throughout that period of silence, they wait and hope that God will show up in human history, that God will send the promised seed, the descendant of Abraham and David, who would finally obey the law, receive the covenants, and bless the world. So that's what is happening in Matthew 1.1. We opened Matthew 1.1, and so many of us think this is the beginning of the story. No, it's the climax. You have been waiting 2,000 years for this moment. Now the good stuff is about to begin. So that's where we're going to pick up the story next week. We're going to enter into this climax of the seed arriving and see how his life and ministry unfold. For today, now that we've walked through the entire Old Testament, let's grab a few lessons on our way out the door. What does this journey through the Old Testament teach us? Well, the first lesson is you really should read your Old Testament. (laughs) You got to do it. If you want to understand Jesus, if you want to understand the church, if you want to understand God's plan for your life, you must read the Old Testament. If you've not done that, start at the far left. Start with Genesis. Start reading through it. And as questions come to your mind, ask me. Ask somebody who works here. We'd love to talk to you about that. Or email me the question. I'm not above doing another Q&A. We'll talk about those questions. We'll help you understand the Old Testament story so that you can understand the New Testament story. So that's the first one. You've got to read your Old Testament. Second lesson, there's always hope. It can be a pretty hopeless time in the world. I have to be very careful about how much news I read or it will trigger quite a bit of hopelessness in me. In the midst of that hopelessness, I find great comfort in the fact that what I'm experiencing is so incredibly similar to what Jews were experiencing one year before Jesus showed up. One year before he showed up, they had been waiting 2,000 years for God to fix all of the darkness in the world, and it was really dark. Things were awful. People were oppressed. There was violence everywhere. They had, it felt like, no hope as they waited 2,000 years for God to show up. And then he did. Jesus showed up and and brought hope and brought salvation. And so I look at my life and I realize, well, I've been waiting 2,000 years for God to show up and fulfill his new promise to send the seed back to claim his throne and be king. I've been waiting the same amount of time they've been waiting. Maybe Jesus is about to come back and fix everything. We are never beyond hope because they were never beyond hope. So keep that in mind when you're reading the news. Third lesson, third and final lesson. God works in unexpected ways. I think most of you know how this story is going to turn out. King is going to show up, but he's not going to be the king they expected. They expected a conquering hero who would wipe out all their enemies. Instead, they got a humble carpenter who would choose to die for their sins. That is incredible news that they never expected. The life of Jesus is completely a surprise to the Jews. They cannot fathom that this would be the king. Not a conqueror with a powerful army, but a humble man who would suffer and die for me. That was incredibly good news that we call the gospel. God deserved to show up on earth as a conquering king and rule the universe. Instead, he showed up as a humble savior to die for his creation, to save us from our sins And then rise from the dead to give us hope and life. That's the good news that we call the gospel. And that's what I want to end with. Because as we move through Matthew this semester, the most important thing to me is that you all would would think about 
the good news that Matthew's trying to communicate to it. You know, see, Matthew, it's, it's not a book of information. This isn't one of your textbooks that you get at school. This is not just an interesting biography that you might pick up at Barnes & Noble. This is a book about good news. News that was so radically good that no one saw it coming and no one could believe it when it actually happened. Matthew is about the fact that when God took on flesh, even though he deserved to rule, he chose to die for us, to set us free from sin and to give us life. If that's new news to you, if you've really never thought about the gospel, about Jesus coming to die and rise so that we could have life as a free gift, I would invite you to come talk to me or someone else here this morning. Let, let us share with you the incredibly good news that you can have forgiveness and eternal life as an absolutely free gift. You don't have to earn God's love. God offers it to you for free because Jesus earned it. The king came and instead of ruling, he died so that he could earn you eternal life. Most incredible, sacrificial, loving, gracious story you will ever read. The king came to die so that you could have life. My prayer is that as we go through Matthew this semester, you will either discover that life for the first time, or if you already have discovered it, you will grow to appreciate it more. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would help us to appreciate more deeply the life that Jesus has earned for us. Lord, we we look through the Old Testament and we pray that you would help us to appreciate what you have done. We screwed up this world so unimaginably bad. We turned the garden into the Thunderdome in no time at all, and yet you didn't give up on us. You did not curse us as we deserved. Instead, you took it upon yourself to fix what we had broken. You decided to send your own son not to rule but to die for us so that we could have forgiveness and restoration and life. And we are so grateful for you for that. Thank you that because of Jesus, we look forward to going back to paradise. We thank you that the Garden of Eden is our future. We will be back with you in a, in a paradise untouched by sin. And that's not because we deserve it. It's not because we've earned it. It's because your son came to die for our sins and rise from the dead, to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant promise, to bring your blessing of redemption to all people on earth. We thank you, Lord God, that you're good. We thank you that you haven't given up on us. And we pray for anyone here who hasn't yet believed that good news. Show them how good you are, God. Help them to trust in your son, Jesus. Thank you for him, we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. I'll see you next week.